Hi, I'm Phelan Johnson. And I'm Leah Simone Bowen, and we look at history a bit differently. Have you ever wondered how hundreds of wild horses came to inhabit an island in the Atlantic Ocean? Or what Lord of the Rings and a small town in Manitoba have in common? Or the burning question, did Canada invent the teen drama? The Secret Life of Canada is a podcast about the country you know and the stories you don't. New episodes available now wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Welcome to Ideas. I'm Nala Ayed. It's the year 1600. Empires are exploding. The British East India Company is about to invent the multinational corporation. Shakespeare is writing Hamlet, Twelfth Night, and Julius Caesar. And Giordano Bruno is burned at the stake for his scientific discoveries. In a book of essays called Languages of Truth, the novelist Salman Rushdie proposed that we are, quote, at a hinge moment in history. A moment when dark storm clouds rush across the sun, and when there are plagues and dragons loose in the world, all must be remade, rethought, reimagined, and rewritten. More generally, he argued that this is not the only hinge moment in history. There seem to be many such moments when significant changes all take place at much the same time. The result? A rethinking of things we thought we understood. A remaking of the world as we understand it. At this year's Stratford Festival, we took Salman Rushdie's proposition about hinge moments as inspiration for our annual series of public discussions. The shock of the new, we called it, and we picked five years in history. 1600, 1789, 1833, 1913, and 1947, Years that signify new beginnings in politics, the sciences, human rights, and that illuminate some of the obvious and not-so-obvious forces that have shaped our modern world. Today on Ideas, the year 1600. Our panelists are Jyotsna Singh, professor of English at Michigan State University, Chris Smink, professor of philosophy at Western University, and historian Amitav Chaudhry. Director of the Global History Initiative at Queen's University. This is The Shock of the New, 1600. Thank you very much. Thank you to all of you for being here. Good morning to all of you. The point of of these, uh, it's a series of panels that we're doing about hinge years, is to look at the eras that these years represent and draw lessons from these eras, and especially to answer a major question, which is how does change happen? And how is it that we can recognize whether we are currently living in a hinge year or a hinge moment? And so that's the starting point of this series. And we begin, as you know, with the year 1600. Thank you all for being here. And I thought perhaps we could begin just now with you. You know, when you think about the year 1600, What is important, just as a main opening statement, for you about that year and the era that it represents? Thank you very much to CBC, and it's wonderful to be back in Stratford. And so I'm interested in both history, literature, culture, uh, the dissemination of ideas and beliefs. And one of the important things of 1600 was the formation of the East India Company. 
and it was given its royal charter by Queen Elizabeth. So it began a little more formally, this sort of what we would call the age of discovery. I see this moment in terms of concentric circles before and after. And one of the corresponding events that happened was a rise of a new kind of writing called travel writing, travel narratives. And there were huge volumes of travel that went along with trade and exploration. So travelers would would travel and then would write about it. The third thing that sort of coincided and preceded this moment was the slave trade that we all talk about. And the first English slave trader was a person called John Hawkins, who was also worked in Queen Elizabeth's Navy. He was a great hero. And so he came before that. And finally, I think we come to Hamlet, because Hamlet was supposedly sort of written around 1600, though officially it's 1603, that that was often considered the kind of rise of the modern subject and modern subjectivity. So I see these connecting links of a growing, expanding world of discovery, exploration, both outwards and inwards. Thank you very much, Josna. Amitav, is there a story that kind of encapsulates that moment or that era for you that represents what you think of that era? Thank you. As a historian, uh, I might be tempted to point out to an absolute arbitrariness of thinking of a year, a particular year, as shaping the future of the world. And yet there are a few things you could point out. Around that time, 1600 and just before and after, Mm -hmm. some of the biggest uh, polities and empires and economies from Ming Dynasty in China to the Mughals in India, the Ottomans, the Safavids, they were at the helm of political and economic power all over the world. And the European polities of Western Europe who would emerge as the strongest politically, economically, technologically by the end of the 18th century were on the margins. So what might have happened around that time, late 16th, early 17th century, is the beginning of a gradual transformation that would shift the global balance of power in a couple of centuries. And maybe I want to talk about a city that many of you may not have heard of, a tiny city called Potosi in modern-day Bolivia, in the south of Bolivia, which at that time, right around 1600, was larger than London, larger than Milan, larger than Seville. It was a city that had a silver mine. It had a silver mountain and served as a source of silver mining and exportation of silver from Potosi uh, to mostly to China. And later, today, Perhaps I'll get the opportunity to say why that is important and how that might have changed and transformed the world. So while for a historian it's difficult to identify a particular year as globally relevant to be something that shaped the entire world, there are elements of transformative processes that you can recognize, and I hope to come back to some of that. We will indeed do that. Thank you very much, Amitav. And Chris, what is it that you think about when you think about that era that's most important? that represents that time. Well, thank you very much. Um, So revolutions often have very modest beginnings. So in the early 16th century, Nicholas Copernicus was asked to help the church in reforming their calendars, which had gotten out of uh, of sync with the seasons. 
And so he ended up revisiting basic questions in astronomy and led to a very different view of how to think about the structure of our solar system. And this transformation uh, extended over 150 years before we ended up with something much more like our modern conception of the solar system. But it wasn't just a transformation within astronomy. These debates about the nature of the cosmos also had much broader implications for the intellectual authority of different institutions within Europe at the time. And Giordano Bruno was burned at the stake in 1600 for beliefs that now seem completely, it's shocking that they were seen as heresies. So for example, he believed that when you look in the night sky and you see stars, those stars might have planets around them. This is something that we've now, we're now observing them. We're going to be observing some new ones with the, the James Webb Space Telescope. So this is, the, the thing that's shocking to me is primarily that the church held that this was a heresy and that they tried to block the development of these views. And so I think Bruno and the, the sort of episode and the sort of longer episode of the development of these ideas really captures this strife within Europe about the intellectual authority of different institutions. And we had, in, 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 by the end of this period, the creation of the idea that natural philosophy or science had its own source of authority that could be held up against the churches. And I hope to say, say some more about that. For sure. Thank you so much, Chris. We'll expand on all of those. I thought, to your point, Amitav, that, that there isn't one year that kind of represents change in that era, that perhaps we should go a little bit further back prior to the year 1600 and talk about what some of the global forces were that were important in shaping the world. So what you mentioned a couple of them. You mentioned the Mughals' uh, rule in India and the Ming dynasty in China. What would you say was the major global force in the period leading up to 1600? Well, if you look at the idea of a modern state, the title of today's forum is, after all, birth of the modern world. And what might we mean by that term? What is modern? And it is often accepted as a newness in bureaucratic governance of the state, new technological innovations. Uh, one can think of new kind of organizations of urbanity and cities. None of these had an absolute beginning around that time. What was, however, possible to identify is an emergence of global trade and a kind of a trade mechanism that would bind the world together into what we now call a world system. So any kind of economic changes or dramatic economic changes in one part of the world would have been felt in other parts of the world starting in the middle of the 16th century. This is not to say that the idea of a world system is something uh, that really absolutely begins in the 16th or early 17th century. There are scholars who talk about its earlier beginnings. But for the first time, triggered by a global trade with the Chinese economy as the central driving force and the Spanish miners and the Portuguese as the intermediaries, create a world economy for the first time that has continued until today. So the global world that we claim to have existed has its nascent stage towards the end of the 16th century. And that is what perhaps is mutually intelligible across the cultures, across the empires in the world. That kind of a sense of a new beginning of a global trade that people could participate in. Jotsna? 
Yeah, and I think, um, as I said, coming from a literature background, to me, the singular most important thing was the invention of the printing press. And so travel narratives and in print culture arose because, you know, books could be printed and circulated. And people studying travel narratives see that it was the rise of uh, travel and printing came together. And the East India Company officials encouraged and actually almost, you know, urged all officials to write about their travels, to write about themselves. And so this was a really exciting phenomenon, as in Shakespeare. You know, Shakespeare's plays were performed on the globe stage, and then they were sold across the river at St. Paul's, at the churchyard. Uh, so there was page and stage. And so I see, you know, the rise of the East India Company was not only actual trade and exploration, but it was the representations of trade and exploration through travelers. And, you know, I can later talk more, but there were figures like Thomas Rowe, who was the first ambassador of King James. There was William Hawkins, who went earlier. There were series of important figures who not only traveled, but then wrote about travel. Uh, and, and print culture, I think in literature you see it changed medieval manuscripts, and that's what I think disseminated Shakespeare. And so the other big date, I would say, is 1623, is the publication of Shakespeare's first folio. So which, we'll, which we'll get to, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. But before that, Kirst, you mentioned the church. What mm-hmm. about the status of the church? What was going on at the time uh, in terms of it being a global force? What was mm-hmm. happening? Well, uh, just to pick up on something that Justnia just said, uh, in terms of print culture, one of the things that was happening in the 16th and early 17th century was the first vernacular translations of the Bible. So Martin Luther uh, did one of these. It's a little bit inaccurate to call them translations because often they were in some sense inventing the language that they were being translated into. Interpretations? Well, there wasn't a German language that was a unified German language that he could just translate into. So this was actually something that was very important in making scripture available to people people more broadly. Um, In terms of the authority of the church, obviously this is the period where the Reformation starts with Martin Luther and the Counter-Reformation. And so uh, Bruno was caught up in the Counter-Reformation and the Inquisition. So this was a time when the church, I think, uh, in some sense from an intellectual point of view, looks as if the Catholic church feels very fragile in some ways. And so the Inquisition is really trying to shore up a set of intellectual supports that it really feels challenged. Um, so I, and I think that's something that's really essential throughout this period, that there's this kind of reaction and defensive uh, response to the new ideas. And this is, again, I find it puzzling that they responded as strongly as they did to ideas in astronomy. It seems like the kind of thing that the church could have easily left aside as something that was not, something that was in the domain of what you had to believe to be a good Christian. Justin, I want to pick up on something you said, which of course interests me, and I'm sure will interest our audience too, which is the whole idea of of a a more global conversation that would have been going on at the time. Could we actually speak at the time about a cross-pollination of cultures? Or, you know, were were people actually interacting with each other across borders? So I think um, Amitav mentioned the Mughal Empire, and that's something that I work on, I'm very interested. And one very interesting example is paintings is Mughal paintings and how in in Bellini and Western paintings, you had paintings of Ottoman, Turkish uh, rulers. And the Mughals who had, especially in the sort of 1600, this around this period, 
were very much uh, great patrons of art and, and paintings. And you see the influence of Christian motifs and iconography in Mughal art. So you would have scenes of Madonna and scenes of Christ. You would have the emperors themselves with pictures of Jesus. Uh, and so that cultures are always permeable. I know we live in a world where politicians want to separate cultures, but I think as a student of literature and art, you see that there's always this cross-pollination. And these empires, actually, the mu Muslim empires like Ottomans and the Mughals, they were very cosmopolitan places. In fact, the Jews who were persecuted in Europe were welcomed in, as far as I know, in Ottoman Turkey and in India, Armenians, Jews, Christians, and Muslims. Uh, so there was a religious conversations and dialogues, you know, especially an emperor like Akbar. And uh, art history, I think, produces great work. You know, I'm not an art historian, but I'm very interested in uh, looking at the paintings. Chris, what about in the scientific realm? I, I'm wondering if, if, you know, how were scientific discoveries changing the way people thought about the nature of the world, just be, beyond the cosmology that you were talking about earlier? Good. So in terms of the world picture that people would have had in the 14th century, in some sense it was, to go back to cosmology briefly, uh, uh, a closed and small universe that had a kind of hierarchical structure with humans at the center. Um, and one of the things that happened was this change so that we would then be demoted to just one more planet orbiting another star in an infinite universe. This is one of the heresies that Bruno was burned for, that he thought the universe, universe could be infinite. And so that is a radical change in humans' position within the world. Um, but on another, on another sense, there was a change that extended throughout the 17th century. Uh, Galileo is famous for this as well, but just the, the way to approach uh, the study of nature was really different as a, uh, compared to earlier centuries. So Galileo really privileged doing demonstrations that you could show and follow directly. Um, people were doing anatomy uh, experiments where they were uh, doing dissections that you could see directly how the human body was structured rather than relying on ancient texts and ancient uh, sources of wisdom, which, uh, you know, 100 years earlier, people would have been more uh, likely to, uh, you know, uh, say that, well, if Aristotle had this, it must have been correct. Whereas there are a lot of changes in just the, the nature of authority. You wanted to be able to demonstrate things quite directly. And that Galileo was a master of that, giving nice arguments that just show how you experience things, if you think about them carefully, show that Aristotle was wrong and that we have to have a different view. Um, and then by the end of the 17th century, obviously the, a lot of different societies had started that really privileged doing sort of experimental methods. Mm -hmm. And that was just a very different way of approaching questions in the study of nature. Did you want to add something, Joseph? Yeah, I think just what came up in mind was that in Renaissance literature, and culture, when they said, what is human, they always looked at art versus nature. So, you know, what is man? What is the nature of man? And how can man be improved or changed? Uh, they were very much interested in gardens. And Renaissance gardens were all about, you know, conquering nature through art. So I think that was very much resonated with you know what you were saying uh, and again coming back to Hamlet I think Hamlet is seen as a very important you know central to Shakespeare because it's really about who is human and what is human and and what is human psychology I think that was another 
interest that uh, mm-hmm. was very uh, sort of dominant at the time is um, they call them early modern passions, you know, what we call emotions. Uh, but I think very much uh, the human was always linked to art and nature. Let's just acknowledge here that that it's not quite as painful, but it is painful to ask such broad questions <laughs> in such a short period of time and expect you guys to deliver in, in two minutes or less. So these are, are tough concepts and they're interesting, but we are uh, jumping as much as possible through the period so we can cover as much of it as, as we can. And so I'd like to get to the political. And Amitav, that's, I, I'll throw this question at you. By the time we get to 1600 itself, can you talk about some of the ideas, the new ideas that were emerging about how people organize themselves politically? If you indulge me, I'll just go back to one point that Chris and Chesna was just talking about. Uh, I'm a global historian after all. And this whole idea of textual criticism, not taking the sacred texts at their face value, or the whole idea of skepticism as a way of thinking, is not unique to the Western world at that time, by the way. It's very much present in India, in China, and the Islamic world. So there's a vibrant legacy of skepticism that has survived to this day as well. In terms of politics, um, one interesting thing, going back to what Jyotsna was saying about the East India Company, uh, and that would be my entry point to that question here, that these large polities like the Mughal Empire, the Ottoman Empire, They are not stagnant, but they are not very politically revolutionary in terms of bringing about new changes in their political organization at that time. What was happening with the the Dutch, the English, and the French, and especially the Dutch and the English, is you see proliferation of uh, small-scale non-state actors who are working in a sub-state level. So the joint stock company, the East India companies, various agents, find them all over, and especially in India at this time. And they are slowly displacing the Portuguese, they're slowly displacing um, the local authorities. And this kind of small actions by intermediaries and uh, weaker agents in these interactions gradually transform the way the politics is organized. And as a result, some of these bigger structures slowly crumble after a couple of centuries or so. So that interpenetration of local polities by small agents, by non-state actors working below the level of the state is the transformative political process we want to talk about. And is that happening in an equitable way or in an even way across the globe? Or, or how equitable was it? Certainly not. I mean, they are the European traders are only going to places where they can profit from. Mm-hmm. So they're only going to the wealthiest sec- sec- sectors of the world. Yeah. So let's get to Shakespeare. It's partly why we're all here. Here's what I want to ask you about Shakespeare: is that he kind of seems, in a way, like a journalist, you know, reporting from the front, at least to me, uh, for obvious reasons, by my bias, but. Is he actually telling his audience something new, or is he reflecting back what's already known and interpreting it for the people watching? I think he is a a sort of um, improviser. He improvises. He takes everything that's already there. You know, like he, he was called the upstart crow because he was supposedly plagiarizing stuff. But I think what I have really grown to like Shakespeare more is he never holds to a single point of view. He's always, always 
showing how one view replaces another. So he was interested in the old, you know, a play like Hamlet. He was interested in the traditional, uh, very cruel versions of revenge. You know, revenge tragedy was very harsh, and he humanized that revenge tragedy genre. So in some ways, he was a plagiarizer, he was an improviser, but he was a recorder. And I think his genius lay in the mixing, mm. in the intermixtures, you know, whether it was of genre or, or whether it was of um, kingship. And I think we talk a lot about gender and sexuality these days. He was most innovative and forward thinking in his notions of gender and gender fluidity and desire. Uh, you know, all these terms that we think we've invented now, they're all in the plays. Mm. And that's why, the you know, the plays aren't fashionable because people are forced to. The plays are fashionable because they have appeal. So, uh, I, I mean, I would agree he could be a journalist <laughs> of his time. Right. But his, his genius was in the mixtures. Amitav, as you're listening, are there other names that come to mind in terms of, you know, global cultural leaders uh, who at the time were having similar or better or more or less influence in terms of how we thought about the world and about human nature? Yes, I think of the Emperor Akbar, uh, yeah. who dies in 1605, and one of the most illustrious Mughal emperors, perhaps the most. And the way Jyotsna was describing Shakespeare, some of the same elements you could recognize exactly. in him as well. A worldly figure, a global citizen in many ways. And he is a leader of an Islamic state, but he's very, very cosmopolitan and uh, liberal in that sense, and uh, uh, religiously lenient, and he's known for that leniency. And then one must ask the question, why is that? Why is it that we see um, Shakespeare, who is in a London of that time is not a global city yet. I mean, there is some element of the sea um, laborers coming in. And why is this illustrious emperor in India so outward looking? And the answer could be found in what we were just discussing before about the interpenetration of these polities and empires by um, global trade. The people are moving around. They are moving around more frequently than ever before. And they are looking at the paintings that Jyotsna was talking about or looking at the curiosities or things from the natural world. They are realizing that there is a much bigger world out there beyond where we actually live. And that kind of an exposure of a global world coming together makes some of these people a global citizen. This is Raga Mishra Bhairavi, music from the time of the Mughal Empire, and possibly something that Akbar himself would have listened to or even played. He was a great lover of music and played the sarat, a kind of lute, which we're listening to now. You're listening to Ideas on CBC Radio 1 in Canada, across North America on Sirius XM, in Australia on ABC Radio National, and around the world at cbc.ca slash ideas. I'm Nala Ayad. I'm Helena Bonham Carter, and for BBC Radio 4, this is History's Secret Heroes, a new series of rarely heard tales from World War II. 
They had no idea that she was Britain's top female codebreaker. We'll hear of daring risk takers. What she was offering to do was to ski in over the high Carpathian mountains. Of course it was dangerous, but uh, danger was his friend. Subscribe to History's Secret Heroes wherever you get your podcasts. One of the plays that Shakespeare was probably working on in the year 1600 is Twelfth Night. The title is a reference to the Twelfth Night After Christmas, a feast of revelry and debauchery, where the social order is overturned and a peasant can become the lord of misrule. On that night, the ground beneath your feet is gone. Anything is possible. At the beginning of the play, the shipwrecked Viola asks, What country, friends, is this? She is told, this is Illyria, lady, to which she replies, and what should I do in Illyria? The answer, of course, is she should do whatever she likes, because Illyria doesn't exist. It's a make-believe country where anything is possible. Here in Illyria, identity and gender can change, and they do, and so do the social rules. Shakespeare is asking us, not for the first or last time, to imagine a new world. This is the shock of the new, the year 1600. Jyotsna Singh, Chris Meek, and Amitav Chaudhry in conversation at the Stratford Festival about a hinge moment in history, a year and an era that still resonates with us. I want to talk more specifically about the trade aspect of this whole global uh, movement or the increase in that and globalization, the way we understand it today anyway. And so, Chris, maybe to you first, to what extent do you think the scientific discovery was driving that globalization, you know, discoveries around navigation, for example? So I think there are numerous problems that people confronted in navigating around the globe that people sought scientific answers for. So the most famous one is the problem of longitude. So latitude can be determined determined easily just by looking at, for example, the the height of the North Star above the horizon. But the longitude was a problem that astronomers actually hope to contribute to if you had an accurate clock and then you could observe the, you know, the sun at uh, its peak, you could determine how far around the globe you had moved. Um, This was a problem that actually wasn't really solved. It ended up being the case that uh, it was early in the 18th century that they first developed a clock that you could take on, on, on board the ship that would allow you to solve the problem of longitude. So I think it's actually the challenges that people faced in navigation and global trade posed a bunch of scientific problems that were ones that were driving some aspects of scientific research rather than the other way around. So I'll, maybe Amitov has a better sense of whether there were particular obstacles, that, uh, the other obstacles also that came in, into play. Uh, not really different from what you are saying, but a particular example perhaps is the way the Portuguese were trying to circumnavigate the deep of Africa, Cape of Good Hope. Mm-hmm. And that was an enormously difficult task. And they tried and tried and stopped all around the West African coast tried to actually engage in barter trade or even uh, militarily take over some of these local chiefdoms, uh, but were not able to. So the interesting story about this time is that Africa was militarily strong, which prevented the Portuguese from taking Mm -hmm. over the west coast of Africa. 
but they eventually did so. It was possible to circumnavigate the tip and then go all the way through the Indian Ocean. And there again, you had to learn about the monsoons. You had to learn about the winds, the trade currents, the, the wind currents. And that took time. And that took not only time, but also local expertise. You know, one of the Portuguese sailors, Vasco da Gama, was able to reach India with the help of a trader uh, or an individual he met in Mozambique named Majid, who was from India, who knew how to sail across the water against the wind currents. Mm -hmm. So that kind of gradual building up of knowledge was a collaborative effort, uh, local knowledge and this central driving force from the Portuguese emperor. And one of the things that uh, happens around that time, it happens actually slightly earlier, but picks up in the 17th century, early 17th century, is this gradual uh, efflorescence, in some sense, of influx of funding from uh, from the from the European joint stock companies to purchase luxury goods, or sometimes textiles and other materials, and especially gunpowder gradually from India, or saltpeter rather, and bring them to Africa to purchase slaves or enslaved people from the West Coast of Africa. And that is important because that really triggers a global trade in a way that, we, that has laid the foundations of what we call, we call capitalism. One interesting aspect of that is that we often think that the European slave traders showed up on the African mm -hmm. coast and just enslaved mm -hmm. the Africans and took them away. That's not how it worked. In the late 15th century, for example, the Portuguese were actually trying to um, have settlements and uh, plantations on the west coast of Africa. And the African chiefs and leaders said, we do not have a mechanism to sell you lands. We do not quantify lands in a way that can be sold. However, we can sell people. Mm. And it was because of their strength that the Portuguese could not defeat them anywhere else apart from Angola, uh, that the early slave trade started by taking people from these African chiefdoms to small islands off the coast of Africa, like the Canary Islands or mm. to me, mm. and then eventually to Brazil. It was because of the strength of these African polities and their different economic organization that this entire transatlantic slave trade took off. And that's where John Hawkins and other mm. people come into play. And that triggered a kind of a trade circuit with Indian textile, Indian saltpeter, British manufactured goods and guns, and enslaved people from Africa, mm. and then taking the products from the New World back to all of this region, mm. forged a global, global economy. So in 1600, um, Jatsna, the British Empire was, was really just getting going, and there were other empires that were far more powerful. Mm -hmm. Was it inevitable, and again, it's easy to ask this question in hindsight, but was it inevitable that the European empires would, would come to dominate the world? Why or why not? Yeah, well, that's, that's a really big question. I mean, <laughs> I think this, this is the long sweep of history, and um, you know, one battle could have been lost and won. The Battle of Plassey could have gone this way or that way. But again, I think I come back to culture. I think the, the British were very clever in cultural domination. It's the cultures that enabled colonization. I mean, Shakespeare productions were being done in Calcutta in the late 19th century. So the local people in, in Calcutta also wanted to do those. And I think a big thing in India that you know Amitabh would talk is that they made English the main language. 
English became the language to be spoken. Mm. I mean, I don't know, you know, inevitability is there, but I always see that these are cultural things that yeah. change the world. And that's why we all speak English in India today. Yes. You know, yeah. I guess, as you say, of course, it's a large question, but I, I suppose the heart of the question is, what do you think we can learn today when the world order is kind of in flux by looking back at this era, when, you know, Western powers were not dominant, Amitav? Well, I must address the point about inevitability. As a historian, we must resist the thought yeah, exactly. that something was inevitable. Yeah. <laughs> and, and the way to answer that question would be not to look at the time period that we are looking at. Mm. It, is, it comes much later. It comes in the 18th century as a consequence of transatlantic slave trade mm. that you have a ready market that would buy British manufactured mm. goods in the New World, in the Americas, in the Caribbean. That sort of emboldens the Industrial Revolution. That is the tipping point. The, the debate is, why did the Dutch not industrialize mm. and the English did? Why did the Chinese not industrialize? So before this momentous change of this long process that we call Industrial Revolution, it wasn't inevitable. There's nothing you can see. Just to kind of um, bring this all up to the present and why we're having this conversation. But Chris, maybe starting with you, as I said at the beginning, the overarching question here is, you know, in this discussion of hinge years, is why does change happen? How does change happen? Mm -hmm. Is there, when I ask this question, what comes to mind? What have we learned from that period? before, during, and after 1600 that could help us answer that question today of why or how change happens? So I think in reflecting on the broader scope of the changes that took place, one of the things that's most striking to me is the importance of having a kind of free exchange of ideas and a kind of research orientation that allows people like Bruno to pursue ideas and see where they lead. And so Obviously, this isn't just that you want to avoid being burned at the stake. You also want to have a living and not just a life. So I think by the end of the 17th century, we see the foundations of societies like the Royal Society in England, and universities start to become more independent from the church. So throughout this period, anyone who taught at a university um, usually had some affiliation with the church in Western Europe. So they're often members of the clergy. And that started to end by the 17th century. And I think that's actually a really important thing that the sort of uh, innovations in the way institutions are structured that allow people to do work and follow it where it leads is something that we started to see there during this time. And I think it's something that's very important going forward. I can't resist asking this question, but is there anything in modern day society that is sort of the parallel or the equivalent of being, being burnt at the stake for saying something? <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I mean, obviously cancel culture has yeah, its uh, drawbacks, exactly. but I don't think that uh, anybody's being burned at the stake. No, so, no. But yeah. it is, it, it's, uh, it's instructive to mm -hmm. look at how ideas could lead to violence or ideas could lead to, a, you know, the polarization that we're Certainly. seeing today. The problem is, I think, one way of arguing for the, the sort of freedom I was just uh, expressing as important is that we should have a free marketplace of ideas. I think the challenge in the current framework is that it's hard to see social media as a free marketplace of ideas. So even though I, I think we should have freedom of expression, 
the sort of incentive structure of social media doesn't actually seem to foster productive debate. So I think there's a difference between saying we need sort of the freedom to pursue research ideas and to express ourselves, and then also making sure that we're supporting the structures that help us do that in a productive way. Mm -hmm. So again, looking at the process of how change happens, Amitav, are there some lessons that you can pull from our discussion and beyond from 1600 that could help us recognize when massive change is happening? I'll preface this by saying what Heraclitus, the Ionian philosopher, said, that nothing is permanent except change. Mm -hmm. Change is the most permanent thing. Absolutely. And uh, change in human society, societies happen as a result of internal contradictions. Change is happening within the society itself. It happens as a result of interactions with new societies and new interactions that were not present before. And it happens in the relationship of human societies with the environment and the changing environment. In all those you know, uh, circles and spheres of interaction, change has been the ever-present theme in human history. Just now? Yeah, I mean, I would you know, second them, and change is inevitable, and we should embrace change rather than resisting it. But to me, is in this whole world, the 16th century, or I mean, 17th century is, expanding knowledge, the production of knowledge uh, that came from here and there and far afield. And here, you know, being a literature person, I think, for instance, theater in England was amazing in dislodging all the orthodoxies mm -hmm. of the time. I mean, the church was powerful. People could, you know, be burnt at the stake. But it was in theater that you had a vision that was constantly being challenged and, uh, and playful and improvisational, that identities could be changed. And so the lesson I learned, you know, when we look at the cancel culture is everything has become ideological mm -hmm. rather than playful and exploratory. Mm -hmm. And not only Shakespeare, but there was a lot of literature in India, in, you know, the Islamic world and art, the cross-pollination. Uh, so this period produced great uh, artistic production uh, which was part of the knowledge. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what we take and why students should still read this because we have students saying, why do we need to read this old stuff? Mm. I don't know if you have <laughs> students, but... And so that's my answer to them. Yeah. <laughs> I guess the, 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 there's, there's slightly different, these two questions, I, I hope, anyway. Uh, the other thing I'm curious is, about is, is there anything that we learn from that period that could help us understand whether we are in a moment of, and when I say change, change is constant, but then there's, you know, a rupture. Is there anything from then that could hint to us now that we are in a, a period of massive change? The thing that comes to mind for me is that the, um, the lack of trust in institutions that were once seen as authoritative institutions within a society. So I think this is one thing that, so, you know, after 1600 and 1618, Europe enters the Thirty Years' War. Mm. So there's a huge uh, transition that's taking place throughout this period from early 16th century that's really a period of enormous religious strife. And that's partly a consequence of the Catholic Church losing its institutional authority throughout Europe. And so I, I do worry about the lack of trust in various institutions. I'm thinking more in the US context and the Canadian context. And that can be very damaging. And so I think if you have 
a political system that incentivizes the extremes, where each of the extremes is in, in different ways undermining the authority of the central institutions, I think that can be quite dangerous. Mm -hmm. So that, that, that's a source of concern for me. Yeah. Amitav, as a follow-up to what you said earlier and connected to Chris's point, how are non-state actors shaping the world today in a way that might echo what we've been talking about? I grew up in India. And in 1992, I believe, cable television came to India. And I used to tell my friends frequently, do you see things are changing? Mm -hmm. Things are changing. In the 19th century, Karl Marx writes, you know, everything is fleeting, ephemeral. Everything that is solid melts into air. And that sense of change was there in the air. And I took pride in that thought that I was able to recognize that change. Um, but the safe historian's stance would be, you don't know. You don't know until sufficient time has elapsed, whether this was a, a huge spike in the nature of graph of change or not. So this is how I mean, change happens because of things like television. That mm -hmm. is often, not always, but often run by non-state actors and by individuals and agencies and productions that run across the border. And uh, the thing to understand is even in this age of heightened nationalism, change is brought about by transborder forces, by non-state actors. Yeah. And as you mentioned, social media being one of them. Mm -hmm. Jasna, are, are there changes that happened in six, or that began in 1600? And again, these are very broad mm -hmm. questions, so please, wherever you see the answer might lie, but are there changes that happened, that began in 1600 that still shape our world today? I think I'm going to do that, and I'm going to respond a little bit to yeah, Bollywood for a moment. Yeah. Uh, but I think <laughs> the, big, the big change I find is that even in the 16th century, the big issue was the individual mm. and who was the individual. And I think today in our world, we, you know, this whole distrust, because we all think we are free, you know, we are individuals. And I think that conundrum has never been solved. I mean, that's a delusion that, you know, we are just into free floating, you know, which is what we sell in America. Uh, so I think that is uh, something that is with us today. So that's why a play like Hamlet can have as much relevance today as it had then. Uh, I had mentioned earlier, there's a really good Indian version of Hamlet called Heather, set in Kashmir. And it's about very contemporary Kashmiri politics. So Denmark becomes Kashmir. But the central issue is what is the relationship between individual and society, mm. which was profoundly addressed in the 17th century and has never, I mean, it, it's a question that's still with us. Yeah. Is it necessarily the case that we only know that we are in an important moment or an inflection point, as you hear a lot, mm. after the fact? But is it, is it possible that we, can, we are at a time now where we can recognize because change is so profound? I think we are able to recognize, and that's part of the point I was making, that sometimes we do see the changes. Mm -hmm. And especially now with COVID mm -hmm. and the pandemic hopefully gradually receding, the world, post-COVID world, will be dramatically different in various ways. Uh, so we do see them, but how do we characterize that change and how do we compare that moment of change with other bigger moments of change is, and is the work of a historian that will be for the later. We'll leave it to you. <laughs> Same, same question, Chris. So I think in terms of the development of different scientific fields, 
there are some cases where you prospectively identify like this is the kind of thing that we need to know and it will, you know, once we find that out, everything will fall into place. But there are often cases that are more like Copernicus. So Copernicus was solving a technical problem in astronomy and by doing so, he revolutionized the way we think about how things move, what causes motion. And so that's a, a much more interesting example where a small problem in, that looks like it's isolated and independent of everything else we understand actually leads to changing everything. Mm. And so that, of course, you can't really anticipate. And that's why we call it a revolution. Exactly. <laughs> Jotsna. You know, it's it's just very, I mean, all of this is very kind of abstract and complicated and one doesn't know. Um, I just more and more feel that we will understand this moment later on, but I do think that there has been a huge change. And I would like just come back to the COVID and because we there's a lot of interest in plague in the Renaissance. And one very important thing about uh, during the plague in the Renaissance, very little literature was written on the plague. Mm. Very, and Shakespeare mentions it in Romeo and Juliet. The, and instead, this was the great flowering of desire and love and other explorations. Uh, so you can't always predict how people respond. And, uh, and I think this age, when we look back, to me, is the, is the rise of more ideological thinking, uh, which none of us expected. We didn't think the world would be more rigid. We always expected the world would be more liberal, mm -hmm. right? So, you know, and I think that historians will look back and hopefully answer what happened. You know, why is there a rise of totalitarianism suddenly? Uh, and uh, maybe we could look back to Richard III and understand, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Always comes back to Shakespeare. Yeah. Okay, thank you. And one question I want to ask all of you, actually, is how much further away do you think we are from the world of 1600? You know, are those people distant in the past history, mm. or are they, you know, are they still kind of our neighbors in terms of ideas that prevailed then? Chris Amitava, then Jotsna to end. So I... I love reading Bruno's dialogues. They're just so imaginative and lively that there's just an expression of sort of a pure, you know, you can connect with somebody like Bruno on that level. Similarly, Galileo's dialogue concerning the two chief world systems. It's a wonderful text and you can, you can just connect with somebody who's arguing, pondering big ideas, trying to find out how you could establish what's uh, true, trying to understand the, the system of nature, given what they had at the time. And so I think you can connect with these figures at that level. Uh, at the same time, I always feel with uh, people in this era that they're wa walking on a knife edge that I'm not really aware of because there are all these heresies in the background. And so it's, it's very clear that anyone working within Italy at that time had to be very aware of what the context was. It's maybe more like in closer to contemporary times, somebody working in the Soviet Union was similarly always had to be aware of exactly the valences of what they said and how it would impact ideology. So there's there's an element of uh, trying to imaginatively get back into that context where you can see why they're doing what they're doing and why they're so cautious in some areas. But it is, it's just at the level of connecting, you can see that they're pursuing this vision of trying to understand nature and, and doing the best they can. And so I can certainly connect with them and see them as members of a philosophical community at that level. Amitav? I don't think you can give one answer to that question that you asked. It depends on where you are, who you are, 
um, in some spheres of life, nothing has changed. In some spheres mm-hmm. of life, everything has changed. The way we interact with people, communications. I still remember when I was a master's student, every Friday I had to book a slot in a telephone booth to call my mother, <laughs> uh, who was just 2,000 kilometers away. And now I can call right now if I want to. Mm-hmm. Um, so change has happened, but the th- thing that I think about this question is uh, what Herbert Marcuse, the 20th century philosopher, would have said, that what we imagine is already predetermined by the world we live in. Mm-hmm. We are not really able to imagine a reality beyond the experience we have had. That's the purpose of popular culture. That's the purpose of the world of consumerism. That our sense of good and bad and all that is already predetermined in a major way. From that perspective, I think nothing major as human society has changed. I think we are in the same long-drawn time period. We the same kind of emotions and needs and ways of relating with others and sense of belonging. That hasn't changed. Technology has changed, Mm -hmm. but I don't think the species has changed. So I will end with Shakespeare and women. So we always, especially in these times, we say, so how has the world changed for women? You know, is it much better? And was was the 17th century, all women were, you know, sort of uh, dominated by men. And I think in some ways, you heard great independent women's voices in Shakespeare. I mean, his the women of his world, we learn from that every day. And so I think we should always keep a comparative perspective that although in those days women were fighting against huge odds, but they spoke out. And in today's world, we do have huge freedoms, but still I think women's issues are, as we know what is happening, uh, are not being addressed and women are not speaking out. So I think that's, I find that a very important comparison in my classes, that it's not that all those women were silent. Mm-hmm. And in today's world where we have so, so many legal freedoms, there are women who are silent. So do we, I'll, I'll sort of end with that. Thank you very much. Um, Chris, Amitav, and Josna, thank you so much for your insights. Thank you. ideas. You've been listening to the year 1600. It's the first in our series, The Shock of the New, a collaboration with the Stratford Festival in Ontario. On today's program, our panelists were Jyotsna Singh, Professor of English at Michigan State University, Chris Smink, Professor of Philosophy at Western University, and historian Amitav Chowdhury, Director of the Global History Initiative at Queen's University. Tune in tomorrow for part two of our series, The Year 1789, More Than One Revolution. This series was produced by Philip Coulter, Pauline Holdsworth, and me, Nala Ayed. At the Stratford Festival, special thanks to Julie Miles and her team, Greg McLaughlin and Liz Thomas. Our web producer is Lisa Ayuso. The technical producer for ideas is Danielle Duval. Our senior producer is Nikola Lukšić. The executive producer of Ideas is Greg Kelly, and I'm Nala Ayed. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.